Bienvenue and welcome back to the Land of Desire. I'm your host, Diana, and this week marks the beginning of my favorite season here in San Francisco, Chipino season. For those of you who haven't had the pleasure, Chipino is the native dish of San Francisco. It's a delicious stew created out of the long, lonely nights of local fishermen. Since fish in the San Francisco Bay tend to bite best at night, fishermen would keep a pot of broth and wine boiling on board all night long, tossing in the odds and ends of their catch of the day until a beautiful stew was ready. As the seasons changed, so did the contributions to the pot, and November produces the best chipino of all, as Dungeness crabs get so fat that the seagulls here start scooping them straight out of the water. Of course, chipino is hard to find outside of the Bay Area, so this week we'll focus on a more familiar alternative, one of the great examples of regional French cuisine, the famous Provençal fish stew, bouillabaisse. Bouillabaisse is delicious, but it's also a perfect example of the relationship between a region, a people, and a cuisine. Like Chipino, bouillabaisse is a classic peasant food, humble ingredients, grown locally, mixed together without pretense, in a way that doesn't interfere with the day's labor. Bouillabaisse isn't just a stew, it's a story. A story of a city mixed together, brought to the boiling point time and again, which manages to coalesce into something utterly irresistible. So, it is with a steaming bowl of bouillabaisse in mind that I turn my thoughts towards this week's subject, the ancient port city of Marseille. During our current mini-series, A Tour de France, we're retracing the route of the 1903 Tour de France to take a closer look at the France less traveled, the tiny villages, the isolated farms, the long, wild country in which most people passed their days over the course of French history. Away from the glittering hustle and bustle of Paris, we discovered a world of lonely roads and lonelier destinations, where French people could pass a lifetime in the company of fewer than 10 people, where winter meant hibernation, where one's greatest source of comfort and companionship was often livestock poking its head through the kitchen window for warmth. Even as the cyclists approached the city of Lyon, the metropolis was surrounded on all sides by loosely populated farmland. And as soon as the cyclists refreshed themselves in the city, they headed into one of the most isolated territories in France. Today, however, the cyclists are heading towards another kind of destination altogether. For the second leg of their Tour de France, the 1903 cyclists are heading towards the oldest city in France, one of the greatest ports in Western Europe, a golden capital of wealth and adventure where ideas, treasures, and people poured in from every corner of the world. Marseille. If Paris was the crown jewel of the French nation, Marseille was her beating heart, and through her doors poured everything which would transform France from a struggling territory to a mighty empire. 
Yet the cargo of the Port of Marseille, which made its way to the roads and rivers of France, wasn't always welcome. The same doors through which gold, exotic spices, inventions, ideas, and people entered France would also admit an enemy which threatened to destroy the city herself. So this week, let's grab our fishing nets, a head of garlic, and a bundle of herbs and head out to the coast as we enter and explore the world of Marseille. A gruff, big-hearted mutt of a city. Venerable, polyglot, slightly louche. A port city in every sense, it's poor and scrappy, rough around the edges. This is the way most major news publications describe Marseille, as though she were a Peter Lorre character mixed with a pound puppy. Right from the start, Marseille has always been a big melting pot. Founded by the Greeks over 2,500 years ago, Marseille became one of the primary trading hubs of the ancient world. Ancient Marseille shared her goods and her innovations with the world, local wine, salted pork, even the Pythagorean theorem. Marseille had another golden age in the 600s and then again in the 900s. By the 1500s, Marseille was one of the most important ports in Renaissance Europe, and everything wonderful and exotic passed through her doors. Spices, silks, scientific instruments, and even more extravagant treasures. In the year 1516, King Francis I traveled south to tour Provence. Before making his way back, he requested the opportunity to see a once-in-a-lifetime treasure. Francis's neighbor, the King of Portugal, really liked his new colonies, especially since Vasco da Gama kept sending him back care packages of gold and silver. He wanted to keep the Pope on his good side so that he could maintain possession of these colonies. But what do you get the Holy Pontiff who has everything? Well, you give the Pope Ganda, the only living rhinoceros to set hoof in Europe since the days of the Roman Empire. The King of Portugal packed up a ship full of gold, silver, silks, ceramics, black pepper, and rhinoceros. Ganda was dressed for success with a beautiful green velvet collar embroidered with flowers. On her way to the Holy See, Ganda's ship docked off the coast of Marseille, and Ganda was the biggest sensation of the season, in every way that you want to interpret that statement. King Francis made a request to view the wonderful beast called Rhinoceron. That day, the king and his wife presided over a mock battle in which the rhinoceros, which seemed to be dressed in his own natural armor, was bombarded by a fusillade of oranges. Ganda had to continue on his journey to Portugal, but King Francis received a gift horse for his troubles before heading back north. Such were the wonders which passed through Marseille. During those golden years, as ships flowed in and out of port and merchants carted back and forth to the markets of France, the fishermen of Marseille contributed an exotic wonder which would remain firmly rooted in place, La Bouillabaisse. La Bouillabaisse sets itself apart from other European fish stews in two ways. 
First, there is the holy trinity of saffron, fennel, and oranges, all products of the great Mediterranean trade routes. Second, there is the selection of fish. If the holy trinity of saffron, fennel, and oranges represented the glorious cosmopolitan trade which flourished around them, the fish of Le Bouillabaisse reflected the reality of the fishermen's day-to-day. Fishing the Mediterranean was hard and often lonely work. The fishermen spent all day out at sea, and when they returned to the shore, tired and starving, the vast majority of their catch was hauled away to the marketplaces of France. In 1551, a few decades after King Francis came to town, the fishermen of Marseille caught 8,000 tons of fish in a single day. Yet the average per capita consumption of fish in Marseille at that time was a paltry 10 kilos. When the men finished dumping the day's catch into a merchant's cart, they turned back towards the leftovers. Here is the heart of bouillabaisse, the ugly and the unwanted fish of the Mediterranean. Begin with the rescas, a spiky, spiny little rockfish and the undisputed star of bouillabaisse. Here's a description of this showstopper from 1611. The sea scorpion is a red, great-headed, and wide-mouthed fish, which hath but a few, and those very tiny, teeth. But in lieu thereof, he is armed with many prickles, both on his back and about his head. Delicious. Next, you have the grand dent, or sea robin, which is a lovely name for something that looks like a lizard with moth wings. Toss in the baudreur, or goosefish, it's so ugly you wouldn't even want to lock eyes with it in a market stall, let alone take it home. Finish it off with the congre eel, and you have a truly disgusting assortment of leftover fish. But hey, you're poor, you're hungry, and luckily enough, you're a Marseillaise, and you know perfectly well that the downtrodden and overlooked often have genius of their own. Grabbing what they could salvage from their nets, the fishermen huddled together on the beaches, bracing themselves against the famous Mistral, the icy, blasting wind which pummels the earlobes and turns summer resort towns into frigid wastelands. It's thought that the original bouillabaisse began with a pot full of seawater, but over time it was replaced with seafood stock. Either way, the entire cauldron was brought to a bouille or rapid boil, so that the oily fish, the water, and the gelatin from all those spiny little fish skeletons could emulsify together. Then, as the broth begins to evaporate, the temperature is abyss, brought down lower. Boil and lower, boil and lower. Bouille et abyss, bouille et abyss. You see where I'm going with this? For the next few centuries to come, this pattern continued. The tides came in, the merchants scurried to meet the boats, the tides rolled out, the fishermen floated out to sea. Bouille et abesse. Then, in 1720, Marseille was betrayed by her beloved port, and the gift of the sea turned out to be a curse. Ever since the Middle Ages, Marseille, like any other major European city, had enacted preventative measures against the spread of disease. 
Back in the 1620s, the leaders of Provence enacted a strict three-part system of quarantine measures. First, a delegation of the city's sanitation board would greet every single incoming ship and look at the logbook to see where she had been, to check against any known outbreaks of disease up and down the Mediterranean. Next, the crew and the passengers would be sent to the islands just off the coast of Marseille to endure quarantine for about 15 to 18 days. Then, if there was still a possibility of disease festering amongst the crew or passengers, everyone would be sent to a more isolated quarantine site and be held there for nearly two months. The measures were harsh, but effective, and Marseille went through a century without any major epidemics. Perhaps, over time, the memory of earlier disease outbreaks faded away and the locals grew too comfortable. Whatever the case may be, in 1720, the great merchant ship Grand Saint-Antoine arrived at the port of Marseille. She'd been on adventure up and down the Mediterranean, calling it Sidon, Smyrna, Tripoli, and Cyprus. And it was at this last stop that a deadly bit of cargo was loaded onto the boat. La Peste, the bubonic plague. By the time she arrived in port, the Grand Saint-Antoine had already lost a few passengers, a few crew, and the ship's own doctor. Naturally, when she pulled into port, the sanitation board said, absolutely not, and sent everyone on board into quarantine. However, the captain of the ship was adamant that the ship be unloaded of her cargo. The great fair at Beaucaré was about to begin, and nearly 300,000 visitors would make the journey to marvel and meet and, most importantly, shop. Alas for the captain, when the official coroner's report delivered a verdict of plague, the ship and all of her cargo was burned. And then, against the judgment of any sensible person, something incredible happened. The ship's crew and her passengers were released from quarantine after their first round of only 15 days. The passengers left the quarantine, headed into town, and even brought along their clothes and personal possessions. As one observer wrote, the magistrates felicitated themselves on the happy success of the precautions taken to stifle such a calamity in its birth. Already, the public, prone to delude themselves and easy to believe what they wished to be true, attributed the malady of those persons to anything rather than to the plague. But the subtle destroyer, mocking alike the precautions of the wise and the jokes of the incredulous, was secretly insinuating itself far and wide. All of a sudden, the plague was everywhere and in every neighborhood in town, man, woman, and child contracted the disease and died within days, if not hours. The proud Marseillaise were now outcasts, with any communication between Marseille and the rest of Provence punishable by death. How to enforce these new boundaries? Le Meur de la Peste. A plague wall stretching across the boundaries of the city, the remains of which you can still see today. Yet, the wall was in vain, and the plague continued to spread north even as it massacred the residents of Marseille. Within two years, 
almost two out of every three citizens of Marseille were dead. Those who lived alone, not wanting to die in solitude, sat on city streets and waited for the inevitable. The healthy barricaded themselves inside their houses, throwing dirty water at any person threatening to approach them. The main square, where high society used to stroll around in its finery, filled with homeless, starving, sunburned, dying people racked with fever. By the end of the epidemic, one out of every three citizens of the entire territory of Provence was dead. Incredibly, the population of Marseille recovered within only 40 years. For comparison's sake, London's population recovered from World War II in 2015. So how did Marseille manage this feat? The answer lies in her greatest import of all. Not spices, not silks, not even fish, but people. The waves of emigrants arriving on the shores of Marseille for the next 300 years sound like a tiny microcosm of European history, with each major historical event triggering another influx of people. The early Industrial Revolution brought low-skilled labor into Marseille from across the Mediterranean, especially Spain, Greece, and Italy. By the end of the 19th century, the, quote, Italian invasion made up fully 40% of the city's population. Russians arrived fleeing their revolution in 1917. Armenians fleeing genocide arrived in 1915. The 1920s brought Vietnamese and Corsican immigrants, while the 1930s brought those escaping the Spanish Civil War. During the World Wars, North Africans arrived. After the World Wars, Sub-Saharan Africans arrived. Famously, in 1962, following the Algerian War, the Pieds Noirs, who supported French colonial rule, returned home after Algeria gained its independence. Another 45,000 Marseillais immigrated from the tiny island of Comoros after it gained independence from France in the 1970s. These days, Marseille sees Eastern Europeans taking advantage of the European Union's mobility and the largest Muslim population of any French city outside of Paris. All this hustle and bustle with easy entrances and easy exits led to Marseille's 20th century reputation as the world's wickedest port. As the novelist Jean-Claude Izot wrote, Marseille was a city of exiles, a place where anyone of any color could get off a boat or a train with his suitcase in his hand and not a cent in his pocket and melt into the crowd. A city where, as soon as he'd set foot on its soil, this man could say, this is it. I'm home. Who called Marseille home? Newly arrived immigrants organized criminals, as famously depicted in the film The French Connection, oil workers, Nazis, and anti-Nazi resistance fighters, soap makers, artists, including Renoir, Cézanne, and Braque. Who calls Marseille home today? Muslims, the second largest population in France after Paris, but also Jews, the third largest population in Europe. 
a whopping 80,000 adherents of the Armenian Apostolic Church. Young people, who make up one-third of the city, who suffer from enormous unemployment, but who also make up all the design firms, art studios, and the thriving bar scene of today. A lot of underground hip-hop artists. The local boy made good, soccer legend Zinedine Zidane. Startups, tech incubators. There's grit and grime, but there's affordable costs of living and space to experiment and try something weird and new. Amidst the new wave of changes washing over Marseille, something has been lost. These days, none of the locals eat bouillabaisse. It's the first victim of gentrification. Bouillabaisse is mostly relegated to overpriced tourist traps, where the bowls are served at sky-high prices. In an effort to really, truly miss the point, the restaurants will usually throw in a glamorous, sexy ingredient like lobster. Almost every single travel article written about Marseille in the last 20 years will include a passage where the author asks local contacts who serves the best bouillabaisse, and the local contacts will shake their heads very sadly. As far back as 1984, the New York Times sounded the alarm. Most of the time, Marseille wouldn't consider tricking a visitor on anything meaner than a cab fare, but it is here, in the area of dissimulating, that locals issue friends their only serious warning about an essential element of the city's reputation. Watch out for the bouillabaisse. There are a hundred places to go wrong. But perhaps this is to be expected. Bouillabaisse, like Marseille herself, never had pretensions about itself. Bouillabaisse, like Marseille, never had pretensions about herself. The soup and the city have always been made of the overlooked parts, the odds and ends that might not get a fair shot in a big city like Paris. Marseille and its greatest culinary contribution are a tribute to the mixed bag, the reinvention, the clever trick. When our Tour de France cyclists first passed through in 1903, Marseille was in the midst of a staggering influx of Italian immigrants and skyrocketing industry. During this year's Tour de France, the overall winner of the race was declared in the city's enormous soccer stadium, which is constantly breaking down and requiring renovations the Marseillaise can't afford. Marseille has seen golden ages, and she's seen dark ages. And somehow, she continues on. Trade winds bring gold, and then they bring plague. Nazis take over, but then resistance fighters, but then communists, but then pizza places. One neighborhood descends into crime. Another neighborhood launches a startup. One young resident struggles to find a job. Another wins the World Cup. One generation abandons the gritty city, and another generation arrives with the new tide. Back and forth, back and forth. Bui Abez. Bui Abez. Thanks for listening to The Land of Desire. 
After this episode, I'm going to go have to cook up some fish stew of my own. I don't know about you. I'm going to try my best to release the next episode before Thanksgiving, but I'm not sure whether I'll be able to squeeze it in. I promise I will try my best. If I do need to delay the episode for the holidays, I'll make sure to update the Facebook page. In the meantime, I'll make sure to wrap up this month's issue of the Land of Desire newsletter. To subscribe to the Land of Desire newsletter or view previous issues, visit thelandofdesire.com newsletter. Thank you again for listening, and until next time, au revoir!